0: from the newsroom of The Washington Post.
1: Hello, hey, Here's Linda from The Washington Post. Hi,
0: this is Beth Reinhardt of The Washington Post. It's Lori over at The Post. I'm good. This is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Wednesday, June 3rd. Today, Joe Biden tries to meet the moment. How Trump uses religion and voices from the protests. So, as we've seen these protests across the country, what have we seen from Joe Biden?
2: In the beginning, Biden was mostly in his basement. I mean, he's sheltering in place like most of us are.
0: Cleve Woodson is a national political reporter for The Post.
2: Earlier this week, he sort of emerged and went to the site of a protest in Wilmington, even taking selfies with some of the protesters.
3: I can't breathe. I can't breathe. George Floyd's last words, but they didn't die with him.
2: Yesterday, he had this big, you know, 20-minute speech in front of American flags where he opined on race and police.
3: They speak to a nation where too often just the color of your skin puts your life at risk.
0: And, And what is he actually saying?
2: A lot of things, right? He's obviously criticizing Trump. Trump's reaction, Trump's response, you know, accusing Trump of being too heavy handed with protesters.
3: When peaceful protesters dispersed in order for a president, a president from the doorstep of the people's house, the White House, using tear gas and flash grenades in order to stage a photo op.
2: He's talking about the history of racial injustice in, in, in America, particularly when it comes to police.
3: I won't traffic in fear and division. I won't fan the flames of hate.
2: And, you know, he's also sort of hinting at the bigger injustices, the bigger racial disparities that are going on um, in America that also need to be addressed, not just the police brutality.
3: I'll seek to heal the racial wounds that have long plagued our country, not use them for political gain.
0: And so what are his bigger ideas or policy proposals of how he would plan to address that if he becomes president?
2: He keeps putting justice at the end of words, Uh, you know, social justice and environmental justice. And, you know, he talks about just systematically addressing all of those issues. The policy positions, you know, he hasn't really come out heavily with Elizabeth Warren style policy papers or whatever, but he does have, you know, a lift every voice plan. He has talked about police departments and and putting pressure on police departments to not use things like chokeholds. It's pretty across the board, not necessarily condemnation, but definitely criticizing certain policies that he believes are just wrong and bad and contribute to the state that we're in.
0: I I think it's Important to remember how much Joe Biden's political campaign was essentially launched out of a a sense of wanting to bring people together and, and bring people together across racial lines. That his his campaign launch video was all about Charlottesville and trying to find common ground and bring people together after Charlottesville. From what you were seeing, what is your sense of how he is doing in this moment?
2: Depends on who you ask. Right. If you if you talk to many of the activists and the protesters, if you talk to the people who are so incensed that they're out marching in the streets, they they would argue that he's not doing enough. They want to see, you know, specific programs. They want to see specific policies. They want to see him put out stronger statements. They want to see him put pressure on, you know, kind of lower officials to implement those policies on a municipal level. Right. So if we're being honest, there are people that feel like no politician, particularly at the presidential level, is going to be able to effect significant change, which is why I think you see a lot of people just sort of checking out of the political system.
0: And I think in some ways you're seeing that that Joe Biden is a very complicated vessel for these messages right now. I mean, even the fact that he is so gaff-prone and this week you saw him telling people at a church, you know, we should be encouraging police to shoot people in the leg rather than shooting people in the heart.
3: And the idea that instead of standing there and teaching a cop there's an unarmed person coming at him with a knife or something and shooting him in the leg instead of in the heart is a very different thing. There's a lot of different things that can change
0: which I think struck a lot of the people in the room and a lot of people online as tone deaf and insensitive and not the message that they wanted to hear. So how is this playing out for him?
2: I think there are a lot of activists who, you know, automatically question whether, you know, a 77-year-old establishment Democrat who is a white man, you know, is the best person to speak up in this time of Black racial animus about police and government systems. Many of the activists that I, I talked to over the last week we're, were still kind of fuming over what Biden had said on The Breakfast Club to Charlamagne.
3: Listen, you got to come see us when you come to New York, VP Biden. I a- will.
2: About it if, if, you know if you don't vote for me, you ain't black.
3: You got more oh. questions. But I tell you, if you have a problem figuring out whether you're for me or Trump, and you ain't black. It don't have nothing to do with Trump. It has to do with
2: the One of the bigger issues, you know, gaffes aside, you know, his speaking style aside, one of the bigger issues I think that, that people have is that Biden is a moderate. At some point, he's going to have to compromise. And they feel like a lot of the activists that I talk to feel like those compromises are going to be at the expense of the things that they want most, right? You know, one, one of the activists that I spoke with said, look, I just want a candidate that represents my values, that reflects my values, and he doesn't feel like, you know, Biden does, and that's why I think people are talking about, well, maybe I shouldn't vote, maybe this isn't the best mechanism, because they don't feel that there's a candidate out there that, that really reflects the anger, the animus, and the desire for change that they're protesting for.
0: And then there's also the issue of Biden's political history and the fact that he is bringing a lot of baggage to this moment. His record on criminal justice policies, the fact that he helped author the 1994 crime bill that was incredibly harmful to black people in this country and even though he was Barack Obama's vice president and has this particular relationship with black voters that I think he's relying on that there is also this sense that he brings a lot of baggage to his campaign but especially to this particular conversation about about criminal justice and the treatment of black people.
2: Yeah, a lot of people view tough on crime measures like the crime bill that Joe Biden spearheaded as the precursors of the sort of heavy-handed police action, police enforcement that they're seeing today. They're, they're, they're not saying that Joe Biden is responsible for it, but they're, they're asking, and perhaps rightly so, if a person who, you know, promoted these types of policies is the best person to be their voice in, in, in this moment.
0: Do you have a sense that this moment is putting more pressure on Biden and his campaign to select a running mate, a vice president who could maybe speak to some of the issues of this moment better than him.
2: I think there's definitely pressure there. And and one of the things, one of the lingering questions over what Joe Biden is going to do is whether he's going to select a woman of color as a vice president. When I talk to folks about what that would mean or whether that would change in a good way or a bad way, their opinions of Biden, what they say is it is representation matters, yes, but they want somebody that doesn't just represent what they are. They want somebody who represents how they feel. So just having a person of color on the ballot doesn't matter if that, if that person doesn't really push the things that they're in the streets fighting for and protesting for and demonstrating for. Like, it's not just the color, it's the ideals behind that person.
0: So what can Biden do going forward? Like, what is the path for him to, to come out of these next few months looking like the person that people who are protesting on the streets right now want to have as their president?
2: Yeah, that's a, a complicated question. When I, when I put that to people... They offer a bevy of answers. And, you know, one of the ways they hatch is by saying, I don't know that there is anything that he can he can do because, you know, he has he has a history. He has a past. He has a, a voting record. One of the things that some activists have said is, you know, can we get Biden to pay more attention to the more liberal wings of the party? Can he bring in Bernie Sanders in a more vocal way? Can he bring in AOC and in a more vocal way? Is that something that he can do? And a lot of people say, you know, one of the things that would convince them that Biden is on their side or not going to be business as usual is if he, you know, does things like takes on police unions. Biden is a very, very pro-union candidate right and police unions particularly in municipal elections are very very powerful but Biden hasn't really come out and said police unions should be promoting citizens review board or clearer use of force policies or something like that what people are tired of is kind of the same the same talk the same high-minded talk that also doesn't really have you know any practical application.
0: Cleve Woodson is a national political reporter for The Post.
4: So this week, we saw the president using religious symbols in two very stark and different ways. Than ever
0: <laughs> Tolu Olorunipa covers the White House for The Post.
4: On Monday, he visited St. John's Episcopal Church right across the street from the White House. Just before that, the streets had been cleared by federal authorities who had cracked down on these peaceful protesters and posed in front of the church that had just been burned in part uh, during protests. He didn't really say much, but he held the Bible. He posed for pictures. He had his cabinet official standing next to him.
0: Is that your Bible?
4: State Bible. And then on Tuesday, the next day, he was pictured in front of a shrine honoring Pope John Paul II. He didn't say much there, but he also was pushing forward this image that he is defending religious liberty, that he is defending Christianity, that he is supporting Uh, This idea that he is not only a law and order president, but a religious president, a moral president, someone who will enforce the moral order and keep uh, the protesters and the chaos from these various protests at bay.
0: And why do you think it is that the president is choosing to take these photos now and to use religious imagery at this moment?
4: Well, the president has long viewed religion as a transactional force that he could use for political means. He's talked about the evangelicals and how they support him in such strong numbers. A lot of times when he talks about religion, he talks about it in terms of his poll numbers and his ability to win over votes and the key force of evangelical voters. In key states that will determine whether or not he wins re-election. So the fact that he is continuing to go to religious sites shows that he's trying to shore up one of the most fervent parts of his base. White evangelical Christians have been rock solid supporters of the president. They like a lot of the things that he's done. And at a time of crisis, at a time when his presidency is really hanging in the balance, he is going back to his base and trying to show them that he still deserves their vote. And I I think that was part of the message and part of the reason that while the country was going through all of these protests and all of this, these crises, he is going back to a place that's comfortable for him, which is sort of pushing religious imagery and pushing the idea that he still can garner the votes of millions of evangelical Christians.
0: So you're saying that there is a political impetus for President Trump to be talking about religion right now. But is this also a reflection of his Personal faith or his personal relationship to Christianity?
4: There is very little evidence that the president has much in terms of a personal faith and a personal knowledge of the tenets of the Christian faith. The president doesn't usually talk about his faith in any personal terms. He usually talks about it in political terms. The president has shown a a lack of understanding about the Bible. Even on Monday when he visited the church and held the Bible, he just sort of held it above his head and didn't really say anything about it. He just sort of used it in some ways as a prop. And that is a, a symbol of the way the president has viewed sort of the public expression of his personal faith. He is very rarely talked about his personal faith. People have tried to ask him whether or not he has, you know, favorite verses of the Bible. I'm wondering
2: what one or two of your most favored Bible uh, verses are. Well, and I, why. I
4: wouldn't want to get
1: into it because to me, that's very personal. You know, when I talk about the Bible, it's very personal. So I don't want to get into no, verses. I don't no want to get into a, There's no, no I, verse I, that means I a just,
5: lot to you that you think about or cite. The,
1: the Bible means a lot to me, but I don't want to get into specifics.
4: Even to cite a verse that no, you like. No, I
1: don't want to do that. you I mean, an Old I
4: mean,
3: Testament guy or a New Testament guy? Uh, probably Equal.
4: He very rarely attends church, and usually he does not give an answer when asked for any specific scripture that he relies on in his personal life. Let
6: me just throw this out there. Is, is there a favorite Bible verse or Bible story that has informed your thinking or your character through life, sir?
1: Well, I think many. I mean, you know, when we get into the Bible, I think many, so many. And uh, you know, people talk an eye for an eye. You can almost say that. That's not a particularly nice thing. But, you know, if you look at what's happening to our country.
0: What is your sense of what white evangelical leaders think about that or members of the white evangelical community? I mean, do they see the president's relationship to them as transactional or do they notice that the president doesn't seem to have any real personal connection to their faith?
4: Yes, there's a very broad spectrum of responses to the president's behavior. There are a number of leading evangelical Christians who fully support President Trump and who believe that he is a personally faithful person, that despite his past as a playboy, that he is someone that they can rely on. Now, there are other evangelical Christians that also look at this as a transactional relationship. They look at what the president has done and they look past his personal behaviors his schoolyard taunts his and they decide that this is a, a transaction that they are willing to be a part of that they like that the fact that the president is appointing conservatives to the judiciary they like the fact that he is cracking down on things like abortion and gay rights in some ways and they are willing to look past some of his personal foibles and say you know we support this president because he supports our agenda now there's starting to be a growing number of evangelicals, especially minority evangelicals, who are willing to be activists against the president, saying that he does not uh, represent the ideals of their faith, that he is anathema to everything that they believe in. And now we're also starting to see that among young white evangelicals as well, saying that some of the things that the president has done of late, including cracking down on peaceful protesters, is not in line with their understanding of biblical teaching and that they are questioning their support of the president.
0: And then there's also Pat Robertson. He's the prominent conservative religious leader who's very popular on TV, and he has come out in criticism of President Trump's behavior.
3: You know, there's a purpose of everything under heaven we read in the Bible, and there's a time, and it seems like now is the time to say, I understand your pain, I want to comfort you, I think it's time we love each other. But the president took a different course. He said, I am the president of law and order. And he issued a heads up. He said, I'm ready to send in military troops if the nation's governors don't act to quell the violence that has rocked American city. Matter of fact, he spoke of them as being jerks. You just don't do that, Mr. President. It isn't cool.
4: There is a wide variety of opinion on what the president is doing when it comes to faith. And I think that the clergy and uh, the evangelical community in particular are starting to voice their various opinions in a much more forceful way as a result of what we've seen over the past several weeks.
0: There was one quote that I found very interesting from David Brody, who's a news anchor at the Christian Broadcasting Network. And in reaction to this photo from Monday, he said, I don't know about you, but I'll take a president with a Bible in his hand in front of a church over far-left violent radicals setting a church on fire any day of the week. And I think that quote kind of speaks to the efficacy of what President Trump is doing in terms of reframing the narrative, that these are no longer protests about black lives and about police brutality, but that it's instead violent protesters versus religious people, people of faith. And it turns President Trump's role in that into more of a noble one.
4: Yes, President Trump was elected with a very narrow coalition that just put him over the top in 2016. And that coalition included not only Christian conservatives, but also suburban people who were concerned about His message of law and order, that message resonated with them because they were concerned about what they were seeing in their streets. And now the president is trying to revive that. He does not want the conversation going into his reelection to be about his response to the coronavirus crisis or even the underlying issues that are propelling some of these protests over police brutality and racial inequality, the president instead wants to really make this a black and white decision for voters about whether or not they support law and order or whether they support anarchy. And that's why he's tried to present himself as the law and order president, someone who believes in faith, someone who will defend churches from this mob, in his words, mob of anarchists. And he is really trying to drive that home. You've seen him try to push that messaging in the midst of these protests, not really talking about the underlying issues that the protesters are focusing on, trying to paint even the peaceful protesters, including the ones who are in Lafayette Park across from the White House, as anarchists, as people who are violent, as people who are criminals, as people who need to be dominated and thrown in jail. He is hoping that that message will resonate with voters at a time when he's overseeing a collapsing economy, he's overseeing a horrible pandemic, and now protests in the streets that have led to several cities burning. He's trying to make the choice much easier for voters, have them not focus on those issues, but instead focus on a choice between law
0: and order and anarchy. Tolu Olurinipa covers the White House for The Post. And now, one more thing we've been hearing a lot about protests in cities around the country in response to the death of George Floyd. But we wanted to take a moment to hear from some of the protesters themselves.
6: The people that are protesting are also men, women, children, babies, you name it, they're all there together. They're not there to hurt anybody. They're not there to do anything but to be able to let their voice be heard. Literally everyone was there. We were chanting George Floyd. We were chanting for Breonna Taylor. We were chanting for Ahmaud Arbery. We were there protesting the the needless killing of Black people that has I mean, continued throughout the country for 400 years.
2: The reason why I'm out here is because I can't breathe. I have a son that's 13. I have a father. I have a brother. I have a cousin that can't breathe. And that's why I'm out here. I will be out here until justice is served for George Floyd. And all the colored people and men and boys and girls that have died at the hand of the justice system. That's why I'm here.
6: I wanted to be there for our Black community because I'm tired of uh, just everything that's been happening to them and the way that they are scared in a way that I will never understand.
5: As an immigrant, it's really important because it's like for all minorities, I think it's time to kind of come together. The deaths of
1: Breonna Taylor and George Floyd. Um, I think that that, um, you know, married to the Trump administration era, um, has just boiled over for many people, and you know, we're tired. Enough is enough.
6: I know that I am high risk, but obviously, I'm taking all the precautions. My friends, everyone that was with me, we, you know, all had masks. We tried to be as socially distance, but distant. But we knew what we were coming up to, right? So this is one of my only opportunities where I felt like it's worthwhile for me to at least raise my voice somewhere where you know it can be heard.
1: Black leaders and people focused on um, black liberation and equality have talked about the disparities of healthcare, talked about the disparities in. Um, you know, the economy and the ability to get a job and disproportionate wealth gaps and disproportionate education and police brutality. But what we're seeing in 2020 is literally every single thing um, happening at the exact same time, right? Um, You know, while we were out protesting yesterday, um, there was a young woman there protesting against police brutality. And she was screaming, she's like, all you white people here, I'm protesting with you. Can you get me a job? And she was crying. She's like, can you get me a job? Can you help me? You, A lot of you are managers, have businesses. She's like, I have nothing. I lost my job during COVID because they shut down and my children aren't eating.
6: There was a moment um, in front of the Capitol building where they had all of the white people line up around them as a perimeter and give everybody all of the black people a space to speak in the middle and one by one everybody took turns sharing their stories of injustice and frustrations and and all of that with with each other well just a moment of community
5: I've documented armed armed rebellion, I've documented like conflict in different parts of the world. And so it's really interesting to be here for this one because the intensity is so high and the riots and the looting kind of took over the news cycle for a little bit. And I think it drew away the attention from the protests. But what I've seen in Oakland is that the protests usually do tend to wrap up by 8 or 9 p.m. And a lot of the vandalism has happened after 10 p.m. So I think here, at least, there's this distinct pattern where, like, you know, it's not the protesters burning a Mercedes-Benz in the Benz Oakland showroom on, on a Sunday night. That happened, like, sometime around midnight. You know, the protesters were home by that time.
6: What happened in front of my apartment, there's a massive park here, um, there was a standoff between protesters who were running through to try to get, get home before curfew and police officers pretty much blocking them with their salt guns or their whatever they are, just ready to go to start shooting. There's folks being arrested left and right. No justice! No justice! Like We were out there protesting police brutality and we were met with police brutality.
0: voices you heard were Ishtiak Ahmed in Dallas, Danny Turkel in Washington, D.C., Starlo Wesley in Minneapolis, Simone Calhoun in Tallahassee, Kashish Shrestha in Oakland, and Frederick Joseph in New York. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. Recently, we got a review in Apple Podcasts that really brightened our day from a 13-year-old listener who said that they're just starting to pay attention to current events and Post Reports has become a daily listen. We wanted to say thank you for listening. And if there's a teenager in your life who's trying to understand this moment, maybe recommend Post Reports to them or send them a link to our archive at postreports.com.